so very much for that. We are back this week in the book of Acts, in chapter 13. I'm going to have you turn to that chapter with me in your Bibles. And interestingly, in the collision of seasons, just as Christmas is approaching, we're going to roll with a decidedly Easter morning message. So here's where the manger collides with the empty tomb. Uh, That's kind of the way that it has to be, though, right? Uh, Without the cross and without the empty tomb, then you wonder what all this is about. That is God's great seal that consummates and completes the work that began in a Bethlehem stable long ago. So we're going to roll with that resurrection theme. In Acts chapter 13, you have recorded the very first sermon of the Apostle Paul. I don't know if it's the first sermon he gave, but it's the first one that is written down. Uh, Up until now, in the book of Acts, he's kind of been in the background a little bit. God had come into his life, had changed his life. He's learning, he's discipling, he's growing under the mentoring ministry of people like Peter and Barnabas. And, And now God is about to put him into the forefront. And from that place of leadership, God is going to use him as the great missionary ambassador who kind of holds the keys to unlocking the gospel for the non-Jewish world, which is, I think, most of us. It's Paul who is used first in a mighty way to be able to connect with non-Jewish people. Ironic, because he was, in his heart, a Jew of Jews, a leader of the Jewish religious people. And God uses not just his voice, his preaching, he uses his pen. Uh, probably 12, maybe 13 of the books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. So have a look in chapter 13. This, uh, just a small portion, a snippet of a lengthy sermon, but it's dominated by a single theme, and this is the one theme that's recurrent in the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Interestingly, Paul doesn't lead with the cross. He doesn't lead with the birth. He leads with the resurrection. It's kind of like leading with the punchline. He he puts his best stuff out there first. You see at the bottom of the first paragraph, verse 30, it says, God raised Jesus from the dead. And right after, if you read on, I don't think we read these verses, but verse 32, he says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us by raising up Jesus. And then he quotes from Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him up from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. Over and over again, Paul is talking about resurrection. That is the cornerstone of his preaching and the cornerstone of his theology. And I think it's important to pay careful attention to how the gospel was presented in the early church, to how how the resurrection was preached, to how it was received, to how it was believed. One of the reasons we're looking at the book of Acts, not just because it's a dynamic, action-filled book, is to to try and understand something about how the early church got its power. Because they had incredible traction in the world. They grew exponentially in a very short space of time. And at the heart of it is the preaching of the resurrection. It was preached, it was believed in two ways. First, as fact, and second, as fulfillment. Verse 30 says God raised him from the dead. And then in verse 31, it goes on to say, and there are witnesses to that fact. And then verse 32, it says, we're going to tell you this good news. What God promised to our ancestors has now been fulfilled through the raising of Jesus. Fact 
and fulfillment. Let's look at those two. You have a, an outline in the back page of your bulletin if you want to look along and make some notes. The resurrection was preached, was believed, should be received as fact. Verse 30 again, not only says God raised him from the dead, but goes on to say he was seen. He was seen by those who traveled with him from Jerusalem, and they are now his witnesses. What's a witness? I mean, in its most common usage, isn't a witness somebody who is called to testify in a court? And they are called to testify to the facts as they have seen them. They don't want hearsay. They don't want secondhand testimony. They only want the raw facts as you can bring them into the court. Isn't that right, Gene? No, no. That's why I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) Fact and fulfillment. The early church didn't look at the resurrection primarily as a symbol or a promise. That's actually, that's, that's remarkably unlike too many churches in our day. The, the resurrection becomes symbolic somehow, a, a reminder of God's faithfulness of his promises, that somehow, even in the GTA, as winter is upon us, that spring will surely come, that the flowers press up through the concrete, that somehow there's always hope. Rubbish. I mean, it wasn't symbolic. It was fact. It was preached as hard, bare, sometimes terribly inconvenient, as paradigm-shattering, as impossible to dismiss fact. Here's the thing about facts. They can be terribly inconvenient, can't they? I mean, everything is settled in your life. Your, Your belief system, your worldview, everything is fine, and then along comes a fact. And the fact has a way of upsetting the apple cart. By preaching the resurrection as fact, one of the things Paul is actually doing is both recounting and recanting so much of his own life. There's no greater example of how inconvenient facts can be than the life of Paul himself. Paul hated Christianity. He found it outrageous. Christians said there was no longer a need for for the physical temple and and that elaborate system of sacrifice and and atonement, that all of that had been fulfilled in Jesus. And boy, he hated that. It felt to him like it, it was gutting the very heart of Judaism. He was offended by it. And then he saw the risen Christ, a rather inconvenient fact. And and despite all that he He disliked, despite all of his convictions, somehow they didn't matter because the raw fact was right there in front of him. Irritating. It just, it left his life in a contorted mess. And he had to go disappear for a while under the mentorship of Gamaliel and, and sort of figure out what life looked like in the wake of these new facts. By the way, Paul wasn't the only one. Historians tell us that that one of the astounding things about Christianity, about it getting off the ground at all in the first century, is that nobody was prepared for, there was no worldview that accounted for, was ready to believe in its central claim, in the resurrection. First century Jews were the last people in the world, incidentally, uh, who would entertain the notion that somehow God had become a human being and walked among us. There was some... Some acceptance maybe within uh, Greece and, and, and Rome, within their system of beliefs, that sometimes the gods, fickle as they were, would 
take on human form and come down and, and frolic among human beings and, and father children and generally just make a mess of things, like a playground. But, but, but Jews had, had no conception of, no, no way of preparing for the idea that God would take on flesh and appear among his creation. More importantly, though, they had really no belief that resurrection would come. Not now, at least. And there was some vague idea that maybe off of the vast expanse of history, somewhere at the very end, when everything had been made right, when the rest of the world had changed, maybe that's the time of resurrection. But the idea of, of a resurrected body today, not a resuscitated body, not, not a body brought back to life. Say that three times fast. Not a body brought back to life, but a resurrected body. A transformed body. A body that the Bible says could, could walk through closed doors, felt intangible, and yet could sit down and eat a meal. So very much a tangible thing. A resurrected body. Historians tell us that the doctrine of the resurrection was something that fit into no worldview in the ancient times. Here's what's important to understand, I think. Our worldview today really has crowded out any place for miracles. They're largely dismissed. If it can't be established and proved and validated by science, we don't want to accept it as true. So no room for miraculous things like the resurrection. We have no room in our worldview. They had no room in their worldview. We may be at opposite poles for why they have no room, but neither one of us have room. So here's the question. For a generation, either today or back then, that had no room for the resurrection, what would it take to make you believe? What would it take for a group of Mississauga residents in the 21st century to believe that Jesus had come back from the dead resurrected? Not just resuscitated, not just that he passed out, but resurrected, beyond death, something entirely new. What would it take? I mean, if he, if he popped up from behind the stand of boxes, and there he was, standing there alive. Greetings, he says. Can I cook you some breakfast? <laughs> Which is what he did to his followers. Whatever it would take, it would have to be something pretty heavy. And what the first century friends and disciples of Jesus got was just that, something incredibly heavy, because they were skeptical. There was nothing that prepared them. Uh, there was nothing that they would have anticipated about this happening. Paul was chief among them as skeptics. And yet the raw fact was heavy enough, significant enough, that it radically transformed their lives. And he had to deal with it. I mean, maybe say it this way. In, in some ways, Christianity is the most irritating of, of all the religions out there that I know of. And and like many of you, I've, I've studied most of them. And unlike many of you, I've, I've not lived surrounded by them in the same way that you have. But, but religions generally, systems of thought, worldviews, they tend to have a variety of teachings and they want to say, we believe this and we believe this and we believe this. So here it is. Here's the package. And, and you get to choose whether you think that makes sense. And if you choose it, you can receive it and adopt it as your own, if it appeals to you. It's kind of, it's kind of like a smorgasbord, right? 
it's very much like a smorgasbord in our day and age, where you just go up and down the aisles, sampling out little pieces of what's on the menu, and the one that you really like, you go back and you load up on that one. Christianity, though, uh, Christianity doesn't get adopted by Paul and by followers because he liked it. In fact, he didn't like it, and it didn't make sense to him. But he looked at the fact, the raw fact of the risen Jesus there back from the grave. And that single disturbing, life-altering fact changed anything. You need a religion. You need a faith that is not just a projection of something already inside of you. Not just a reflection of your own tastes. Because if it's already from inside of you, there's no power there to transform you. You need something real. Maybe something disturbing, something from outside, something from above. Christianity teaches that the resurrection is fact. Amen. And then it goes on to say that it's fulfillment. And I want to unpack what that means just a little bit. So you have a series of, uh, of notes there in front of you. Paul says, this is verse 32, if you have your Bible still open, the promise to our ancestors has been fulfilled to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was the promise? Well, there was a multitude of them. The, the Old Testament is, is filled with these promises. And if you were to summarize them, you might say that the promises all pointed in this direction. They were meant to say that the future is not dark and bleak. That it radiates with light and brightness and glory that there's hope. And one of the questions that needs to be asked, at least by curious people, is what is it that was there in the very beginning in the message of the church, in the gospel, that allowed them to move into the future and to do it in a way that, that unexpectedly somehow overtook and redeemed and, and incorporated everything that was there in the most dominant cultures of the day. This happened first in the Greco-Roman world. I mean, if ever there was a culture that was designed from the ground up to be able to, to incorporate and, and subsume, to absorb, this is like the Borg, assimilation. That makes sense to anyone? Yeah, okay. Uh, designed to assimilate cultures. This was it, the Greco-Roman world. And yet somehow within a few short centuries, Christianity was able to transform it. What are the reasons? Uh, some of you benefited maybe from a year or two at college or university and in an arts program. And if that's the case, you probably were exposed to, you probably had to read some of the Greek philosophers. Aristotle, Plato, is that ringing a bell for anyone? Do you remember anything they said? I don't. Not really. But, but why did you read them? You read them because they were brilliant. They were brilliant back then. They still are brilliant. They're, they're worth reading. How is it that, that that ancient culture, proud and brilliant, how is it possible that within two or three centuries, Christian beliefs and Christian ethics completely supplanted and transformed it? To answer that question, um, I did a fair bit of reading, and I have over the past couple of decades. I tended my reading to gravitate towards non-Christian authors more than Christian authors, particularly when it comes to history, because they're going to be less biased. And on that question of how it is that Christianity grew, fulfilled the promise that was there in it, 
Historians are almost unanimous in suggesting that, that one of the main reasons, the chief reason, is the doctrine of the resurrection. Because it was something unlike the world had ever seen before. I mean, despite the fact that, that it was anticipated a little bit in the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish people, they had no expectation of it. It's certainly not what the ancient Greek or Roman empires expected. There's nothing in Eastern thought that presupposed or imagined it. It was the uniqueness of and the implications of the resurrection that account for Christianity growing so quickly and and it's growing still. Because it speaks to, it fulfills a longing within human beings in a way that nothing else that's ever been spoken or written or prayed has been able to do. It proves that the future is there. Everything is so uncertain in the world. It says that there's a future that is there. It says that future is personal. It says that that future is certain. And it says that there's something wonderful, almost unimaginably wonderful about it. So let's go through those things. The resurrection of Jesus proves that the future is there. Let me mention another one of those early thinkers, those Greeks, those Romans, Epicurus founder of a group called the Epicureans. It feels kind of self-centered. Let's form the Richardians. See what now. <laughs> yeah. But Epicurus, he taught something that, boy, I think this has a lot of currency in our culture today. He said, when you die, that's the end. That is the end, not just of your existence, but the end of any awareness of existence. You don't exist in any form at all. This is what he wrote. He said, therefore, we shouldn't be afraid. Because when you die, you're not there. You don't exist. You don't know anything. That's it. Popular view back then. Equally popular nowadays. Though I'm not sure it's popular because it's a good thing. But it's just out there. Not everybody felt that way. There was also a very popular belief in the afterlife. And that's kind of out there today too. Uh, People want to hold on to the idea that Maybe there's something else. Have you been there at, at a graveside service or a memorial service for a family that, that it's not really centered around any particular faith or faith system, but they're still holding on to some idea that the person is there, that they're watching down and they'd be smiling today because of this, or they become somehow an angel and they're, they're with us. We, we hold on to that. Well, that was there in the ancient world too. Uh, they thought of it kind of like a netherworld or an underworld. They weren't certain it was there. They were pretty certain that it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't something they were looking forward to, but they just weren't sure. So that was out there. You had a large group within Judaism. Remember, this, these are our ancestors. This is our heritage. A group called the Sadducees and their followers uh, who were convinced there was no afterlife whatsoever, that when you're done, you're done. And then here comes the resurrection. And if you talked to one of those witnesses, and if you saw the change in their life, and if you heard the credibility in their voice and their testimony, as they said, I believe in the resurrection, you know what it meant? It meant for them, for the first time with clarity, in a world that had no clarity on this, they understood that there was a future. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. If anyone believes in me, even though they die, 
they will live and those who live and believe in me will never die. Well, those were just words until he came back. Then suddenly it's like those words had been stamped with an approval that came from heaven itself as if to say, you can hold on to these words. You can base your life on these words. The future is not darkness. There's resurrection. It's not just life is dust in the wind. You're not just a stone that sinks to the bottom of a pond. Resurrection means you have a future. More than just that, though, this is the second thing in that list of four. The doctrine of resurrection assures us that not only is the future there, the future is personal. Remember Epicurus? He's the one who said that when you die, that's it. You're done. You're not there. Non-existence. There were other philosophers back then, groups like, well, the Stoics. They founded a school called Stoicism. (laughs) Sensing a trend here? They believed, like a lot of Eastern people, Buddhists and, and many Hindus, that when you die, you don't stop existing, but somehow who you were goes back into the soul of the world or the, the center of the world. You're like a drop of water that goes back into the ocean. You lose your individuality. You're no longer a person, but you continue as part of the universe. You're stardust and you go back. And that's kind of a popular thing out there too, right? I mean, that's the theme of the Lion King, the circle of life. You die, you become fertilizer, your nourishment for the tree, the tree becomes food for the next generation of life. It's, it's out there, right? Now here's the challenge, at least for me. See if you resonate with this. When Epicurus says you don't have to be afraid of death because you'll just stop existing and you won't know and, and it's just the end. Or when others would say you don't have to be afraid of death because you continue in some impersonal way and you go back to the soul of the universe. It seems to me a non-existent future or a non-personal future where there's no love in it, either one of those are good news to me. And of both of those things, I would be deeply afraid. Because all I know about about life with any certainty is is this when it comes to human relationships. The thing that makes people most happy in the world is fully formed, connected, loving relationships. Everything else comes and goes, but but you have those things, and and it's like there is a central core to your life, and, and it gives it significance and purpose. The deepest desire of the human heart, I think, is to connect in loving ways. So when somebody says you don't have to be afraid of death, because you cease to exist as a person. Either you cease to exist at all, or you, you go back to the soul of the universe. I would just want to say, rubbish. There's nothing good about that good news, because the one thing that makes my life meaningful, love between people, is gone forever. Whether it's the love between a husband and wife, a parent and a child, or between a child and their God in heaven, all of those are personal things. The doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead and those who believe in him will be raised from the dead means that you go on and you're still you. It's personal. You have a spirit. You have a soul. They go on and you have a body. And you'll be with people and they're still them. The resurrection promises love that continues without parting. 
without eternal separation. It promises a future that's personal. That's good news, isn't it? Amen. Thirdly, the resurrection promises that the future is certain. What good does it say? Well, all of that is out there. There's this wonderful future out there if you're not certain that you're going to be a part of it. That's the main burden, the main thrust of of Paul's sermon. Notice he says, verse 27, the people of Jerusalem and the rulers, they didn't recognize Jesus. No, they found no proper ground for a death sentence. They asked Pilate to have him executed. What's Paul doing? He's not trying to make the, the leaders in Jerusalem look bad. Maybe he is. But, but what he's really trying to say is that, that Jesus died, but he didn't die for, for something that was his own fault. It's not him who's culpable in it. So down there in verse 38, it says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the old laws of Moses. You get the thrust of his argument? If Jesus didn't die for for his own stuff, his own baggage, his own brokenness, his own sin, and if the resurrection proves that God vindicated him, then why did he die? Who did he die for? Well, you know the answer to that, but can you imagine how shocking it would be the first time Paul gave that message? He died for you. He died for me. And the resurrection is proof of that. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. You're in a shopping mall, Christmas season. You're nuts, but you're there. And, and you wander into a department store, and, and you find that, that one gift, you narrow in on it, you select it, it's just right, you take it to the cashier's desk, you pay for it. You get a bag, and then importantly, you get a receipt, right? Because you know they're going to re-gift it, or they're going to return it. No. You, <laughs> you, you put it in there. Because what you don't want to happen while you're still wandering around the mall is for the plainclothes security guards to catch you and ask you about that thing in your bag and take you into the back room and and press you on that and say, either you pay for that or we're going to charge you. You want to be able to reach into your bag and produce a receipt and say, listen, it's mine. It's paid for. I don't have to pay again. Unless you use the credit card, and then you're going to be just—you'll keep paying for it. But I'm free. I'm free. You see, we've done things in our lives, haven't we? A lot of them are pretty hard to forget, and we're convinced that other people aren't forgetting them either. I can't forget them, and they can't forgive them. And sometimes we just feel lousy about ourselves. What would it be like to be able to reach into your pocket and hold up a receipt that says paid for? I'm free. Free of that. It was Martin Luther who who said that, you know, if you're suffering, if you're going through dark times, if you're facing death, And if you're not absolutely sure that God is for you, absolutely sure that God accepts you, absolutely sure that your sins have been paid and that you're going to be with Him, then the mere knowledge that there is a bright future out there, that that it's possible, if you're not certain it's for you, it's of no consolation whatsoever. 
you've been with people, either in their final hours or with families after a very recent loss. You've been there. I've been there. I think it's one of the great privileges to to be there when the last chapter of their life here becomes the prologue to the life to come. But sometimes that last chapter, it's it's not what you think it would be. Sometimes, you know, I'm there with people who they've been here for for years, decades, and yet when you're involved in conversation or prayer and you want to be able to have them hold on to that bedrock truth in your life, are you certain? I mean, you know for sure, right? They'll say, you know what, I don't. I realize in this moment that I don't. I've been singing about it for years. I've been showing up for decades, but I'm not sure. And then you have the great opportunity to to come into their life and to pray with them and to read scriptures around assurance and and have them say the words that that bring certainty. The resurrection, I think, is the greatest receipt in the history of the world. It, it's a stamp that that sort of is emblazoned across all history in a way that everyone can read. Everything that you are, everything that you've done, it's been dealt with. Jesus' resurrection means that the plan worked. The penalty for a crime is 10 years in jail. When you complete your sentence, you walk out of the jail, you're free. The penalty has been paid. But what if the penalty is death? When Jesus walks out of death, it means it's been paid for. You are freed. Hallelujah. And so really, that last point in your notes is meant just to be a kind of a doxology, a burst of praise, because the resurrection is, there's something unimaginable about it, something just too wondrous for words. Let me get at it this way if I can. I'm not sure why, but here we're back in, we're back in that arts class in university again, uh, or maybe high school. How many of you had to read Edgar Allan Poe? Probably if you were in a North American school system. If you read anything by Edgar Allan Poe, you probably read his poem called The Raven, right? The Raven with its one pounding, recurring, uncomfortable word. Here's what you need to know about it if you haven't read it. It's a poem. It's a dark poem. It's a poem that he wrote about a man who just lost the love of his life and he's broken hearted. The woman, I think her name was Lenore. Does anybody remember Lenore? Lenore? Yeah. And uh, he doesn't know whether he can get over it. He doesn't know whether he gets her back or not. And as he's pondering all these things, a huge raven comes in and perches on the bus that's there and the mantle over his door. And that single recurring maddening word is uttered over and over again by the raven. It's the word, nevermore. You guys got great memories. Wow. Nevermore. And and what he's doing in the poem is trying to get across the the frightening, dark pithiness. I checked in the early service. That's a word. Pithiness. The seeming irreversibility of life. 
nevermore, over and over again, no matter what the question is, the raven keeps saying, nevermore. Those of you who, uh, who are a little bit younger, uh, young in faith, young also in years, the cross comes into your life and assumes this incredible place of prominence. And, and one of the things that it says, as it should, is, is that the stuff in my life that happens that, that I hope nobody ever finds out about, that nobody ever knows about, the, the stuff that would want to make me lock my door and just weep for shame, the cross is the answer to that, that the cross deals with that. The resurrection is a celebration of what the cross does. There's something that happens, though, I think, as you journey through the years a little bit. And I hear it when I listen into the wisdom and the lives of, of some of our older saints. And I, I guess, to be honest, I'm, I'm starting to find that my thoughts are drifting that way a little bit, too. I'm knocking on the doorstep of 50. Now... Uh, Oh, poor guy, right? <laughs> and I'm not sure when it started for you, but, but do you remember when you first started to think, that, you know, I might have more miles behind me than I have ahead of me? <laughs> As you get older, the resurrection takes on new meaning because it feels like the future is rushing up on you. Your youth is gone. It's irreversible. You're not getting it back. Nevermore. <laughs> Your health is changing. Maybe it's fading a little bit. And it feels irreversible. Nevermore. You will not be the athlete that you were 30 years ago. You will not have the constitution that you had 10 years ago. Nevermore. You drive down what used to be a familiar street and every store that was once there that you went to you frequented that you knew is gone, and they're all Walmart. <laughs> it's irreversible. Nevermore. More painfully, the friends that you knew and cherished and, and spent your life with, one by one, you're standing at the graveside with their family. And then most painfully, one day it's the person who's closest to you. That's irreversible. Nevermore. Everything is going. You're never getting it back. Irreversibility, somebody once said, is sort of like the experience of dying right in the middle of life. The resurrection says no to the word nevermore. Doesn't it? Isn't that what the resurrection is all about? The awesome promise of reversibility. The resurrection is the restoration of what you've lost. What you think is gone forever, you get back. You get your body back. You don't get back the body that you wish you had. You get back the body that God meant you to have. You get back the body that you always dreamed that you could have. You can hug. You can embrace. You can sing. Baptist, you can dance. And you're good at it. Ha! <laughs> 
You get your life back, and not just your life back. You get the life that God always intended for you, that He designed for you. You're a body. You're not just a soul. It's all together. You get it all back. The people that you've lost, they're back. It's the awesome promise of reversibility. It's unimaginably wonderful, and there is nothing else in the world that promises anything like it. And so for 2,000 years, people have saying, I want that. I need that. I have that. A living, bright, shining reality that says the future is certain, it's personal, and it's unimaginably wonderful. Fact and fulfillment. And it is for you. You know what? That's it. That's enough. We're going to pray. <laughs> We're going to pray. I'm going to have the worship team come join me on the stage. And then we've got one more thing to do this morning. And you're going to enjoy it. And I'm looking forward to it. But let's, let's go to God in prayer. Father, help us to not only take this as fact, but to put it in the middle of our lives so that it becomes a life-defining, a life-altering reality, the fulfillment of all of our deepest longings. Make us a community of people who live with the certainty, with the assurance of the power of the resurrection, who live for the honor and the glory of the resurrected Christ. Lord, we want to be growing each day more and more in Christ-likeness, setting aside the sins that trip us up, dying more and more to selfishness and to godliness, living more and more for righteousness and holiness. Jesus, in everything that we do, as people and as a church, we want to be moving in the direction of, of resurrection life. Help us, Lord, in a world that, that in every corner feels very broken. Help us to offer real hope Real encouragement. Let it begin in our city, God. I want to pray particularly for this congregation. One or two people were here this morning and, and the message was exactly for them. It's just what they needed to hear in this moment. And God, would you meet their deepest need? But for all of us, God, for this congregation, help us to be really a resurrection community. Those who hold the Christ light bright and shining in front of each other. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.